This is episode 314 with the 2002 New England Cross-Country Coach of the Year, the 2004 New England Small College Athletic Conference Coach of the Year, 237 marathoner, and the former head cross-country coach of Connecticut College, my college coach, Jim Butler. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and you're about to hear from my college cross-country coach. If you're new to the podcast, the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com, and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. I'm the head coach of Strength Running, formerly a 239 marathoner, and a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine. On this podcast, I share my insights on the sport and speak with the world's smartest subject matter experts to help you improve. I'm happy to connect anytime, so feel free to email me or you can send me a message on Instagram or YouTube. Now I want to thank our partners who support the show. They're offering you some great discounts, which I hope you'll take advantage of. And both of these companies have products that I use on a daily basis. First is Prevenex. The only supplement company I trust because they're voluntarily putting themselves under much more scrutiny and holding themselves to a higher standard than the rest of the supplement industry. Create some health for yourself at Prevenex.com with code Jason15 for 15% off. You're going to love their Joint Health Plus product because it actually works. It reduces joint pain and improves how you feel with clinical double-blinded studies to prove it. Stay tuned until after the show, and I'll share some amazing testimonials from other listeners. Try it now at Prevenex.com and use code Jason15 for 15% off your purchase. Next is our newest sponsor, Lagoon. They make the most comfortable pillow I've ever tried, and since I know that sleep is the number one recovery tool at my disposal, I'm taking it a lot more seriously. I took their sleep quiz. It's only two minutes, and you can take yours at lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning. And I was paired with the Fox pillow, and I'm loving it. Since you can add or remove fill to get your alignment just right, it's a great way to optimize the most important way you can become a better runner that isn't training, your sleep. Take your rest and recovery to the next level with Lagoon and get 15% off your purchase with code strengthrunning at lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning. All right, my guest today is none other than my college cross-country coach. I partly chose to attend Connecticut College because of Jim Butler, and it was an honor to spend some time with him for this episode. I'm just going to call him Coach since I have a hard time calling him Jim. Coach was my running mentor for most of my running career, helping me to build the love and work ethic I have for the sport, and I'm eternally grateful for that guidance. He spent more than 30 years as the head men's cross-country coach at Con, coaching multiple national qualifiers, and his 2002 team advanced to the national championship meet. I had the privilege of being an alternate for that team. Coach would regularly have the team over his house for meals and get-togethers, and we were all fortunate to feel like part of his family. This wide-ranging conversation focuses on his career, what he looks for in recruiting high school runners, his take on the latest tech, what's most important for improvement, and a lot more. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Coach Jim Butler. Hey, Coach. Thanks for being here and making the time. Great to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. So I don't know really where to start with you, Coach. We have such a history, but maybe let's begin with an overview of your personal running background. I know that you competed for Rutgers University in both cross-country and track, and then you established yourself as a just a dominant force in the Connecticut road racing scene. Um, tell us a few of your favorite memories from those competitive days. You know what was what was Jim Butler doing at your running peak? Well, boy, I should go way back because I owe a debt of gratitude to my high school coach who really got me interested in the sport. His name was Coach Doug Sharples. He's still my good friend and mentor. He lives around here. He's been the National High School Coach of the Year. Um, he really developed a love for the sport in many of his former athletes. Many of us went on to coach. Um, I ran at Rutgers, as you mentioned. That was certainly a highlight of my long life, not to mention my running life, because I met some really great fellows there. Um, 
had great roommates. We were pretty competitive back in their day. Uh, we actually had a marathon team, which is where I started that long distance event. And I suspect that um, the highlights I should cite for you probably uh, were oftentimes off over that distance. Um, I ran Boston 19 times. The only reason I didn't run at 20 was my senior year of college. Coach Wallach, uh, my Rutgers coach, had three of us go down to the Penn Relays where we proceeded to um, finish first in the collegiate division. They actually had a collegiate marathon. Um, I was, I believe I was 11th. I was a second man. Um, I, as a coach, I don't think it's smart to have your collegiate athletes run college marathons, but this was back in the dark ages in the 1970s. So, uh, we were running a lot of miles and we were capable of handling the distance. Um, highlights, uh, boy, all the friends I met, you know, that was the highlights, uh, coaching, uh, coaching guys like you, meeting your parents meeting your families, lifelong friendships for my wife, Debbie, and I. So I, it's, it's hard. You know, I had a few races. I was, I, I, you know, I like to say there might be in a runner's career five, ten races that you really hit the perfect day. It's like a surfer hitting the perfect wave. And, and I can think of maybe five that I had. Um, one was when I ran my personal best at Boston. I was coming off of sickness. I think it was in 1978. I had been sick. It was pouring rain that day, and I thought I was toast. I thought I was done. And I ran a personal best time there. So go figure. Uh, and placed my highest there. I think I was 161st. Um, oh, what else? Uh, you know, because I told you, uh, I ran a 24-hour race on a dare from my good friend, Andy Burfoot. He suggested to me that I was scared of the distance. I said, I've never been scared of anything in my life. I will kick your backside. Um, and I did. I beat Amby by 30 or 40 miles, and I won the race by 13 miles. So I had a good day. Um, I was always capable of running long. I wasn't particularly fast. Um, I like to grind. That's how I play golf now. I grind. <laughs> um, I'm not particularly good golfer, but I'm a pretty good scrambler, and I like to compete. Um, and then one other race that stands out, uh, because it runs right by my house, it's in my hometown and it's named after another dear, dear now gone friend and mentor, John Kelly, who had won, um, I think it was eight straight national marathon titles, ran through the United States and two Olympics in the marathon. Um, but Johnny became a dear friend of mine and they, they named the local race after him. It used to be called the ocean beach race, not far from my house. And now it's named after John and and now after his wife too. It's become a half marathon, but when I ran it, it was 11.6 miles because back in the day, they would pick a starting and an ending point right out the course. They didn't care about, you know, standard distances. Um, but I had a particularly good day. I was with Ambie Burfoot, uh, who would win the, who had won the 1968 Boston Marathon. Well, sometime, well, uh, at the end of my collegiate career, we became good friends and training partners for many years. We still run together in the winters when I'm running. And um, I, I found myself when we were five or six miles and we were not far off the lead, about halfway done the race. And we were on, uh, I believe we were on the same team at the time. We were running for Kelly's Pace, a team um, out of John's store. And Amby said, how are you feeling? I said, pretty good. And he said, well, I'm feeling great. I'm going to go try to catch the guy in the lead. And he knew who it was. It was a kid who would run at URI. And I said, well, I don't think I can, I can go at the pace you're going to be going. He said, no, we need you to hold this place. I, would, I was in our top three guys. So I hung on and I got seventh place. Amby did catch the guy in one. I ran seventh. Uh, I ran 62.11 for 11.6 miles, which if you do the math, I believe is 520 pace. Um, probably one of the best races I ever ran. And it was a great time because we did win the team title. Never won the race personally. I always wanted to because they gave out great pewter mugs. I turned 40. Um, I, let's see, I'm, I just turned 70. So I was uh, 40 in 19, I got to do the math, 93. And in 1992, the race was held six or seven days, maybe eight days before my birthday. And I went out and I beat the fellow who won the 40-year-old division by almost two minutes, a, a friend of mine. And I was like, darn it, if I had gotten a waiver, if the race had been delayed, 
for a week, I would have gotten that pewter beer mug, which I really wanted. Status symbol, you know, it was bragging rights. Well, the next year, um, I was now a master and I ran pretty well, but the fellow that I had beat the year before ran a little better and he, he beat me and he won the pewter mug. So he got it two years from above. Oh, well. I, I love after all these years, coach, you're talking about some arbitrary pewter mug that yeah. you wish you had won after three decades. It, no, it has to do with one of the loves of my life. Besides my wife, I, I do enjoy quaffing a good cold brew once in a while. So, And after I graduated, I very much enjoyed having a, a <laughs> beverage with you from time to time. Uh, I think there is tremendous wisdom in what you said about in your entire running career, you might have only five to 10 races that might be quote unquote perfect. Because I look back on my college career, most races were kind of a train wreck. You know, I was either not fully in shape or I was coming off an injury or, or the race just didn't go well. Maybe it was really hot. There's so many issues that can complicate a race performance. And so hearing you after decades of racing history, just say that, you know, you're only going to really put it together perfectly five to 10 times, I think is very encouraging for anybody listening to this because it kind of makes it okay to have a bad race, to have a bad workout. You're going to be able to come back and do another one and that's okay. But I, I do have to take some issue with you saying that you weren't fast in the marathon because no matter how hard I tried during my post-collegiate years, my marathon time is still about two minutes slower than yours. Granny, you ran pretty fast. You ran pretty fast. You know, back to the perfect races, I probably exaggerated when I said 10. There's, I, I, I think throughout my career, I said there's five or six. And, and I raced over almost 30 years, I guess I raced. Um, but that's, like you said, it's okay. Um, as you know, I've been married to the wonderful Mrs. Butler, Mrs. Coach for 42 years now. Hopefully I'll make it to 43 this October. Um, but I used to come home when I was still racing when we were newly married. And if I had just an okay race, not one of those perfect races, I, I would you know, go into my moan and groan attitude a little bit. How'd you do? Uh, no, I, I only finished this. I could have run faster. I didn't make the move or I didn't pay attention. Um, maybe I trained too hard the week before. And after hearing that several weekends in a row, I finally got sat down and she said to me, if you're going to race, you should enjoy it. If you're going to come home and moan and groan, I don't want to hear it. Um, <laughs> and she's been that way about my golf too. And, and golf's a lot like running, except it's more cerebral. Uh, running is, is very physical. Uh, golf is a, is a physical sport too. Um, but you really have to control your mind and your emotions. So I, I, when I first took up golf, seriously, 11 years ago, I'd come home, she'd say, she always asked me, how'd you do? And if I just say I had a lot of fun, she knows it wasn't a good scoring day. Now she asked me, did you win any money? Um, but I've had some good days and I come home, I'll tell her my score. And, um, I, I learned from her that just because I didn't shoot a particular number in golf or run a particular time in my race, you can still enjoy your sport. Um, and and the, the people that are going to be listening to your podcast here that are maybe starting out running should recognize you can't be perfect every day because we're not perfect. We're human beings. You can work hard in practice, uh, do all the right things, listen to your coach if you have a coach. Um, Take care of your body, get the right sleep, um, and go into a race with a positive frame of mind. And that come out of it, no matter what place you finish, no matter what the clock says, the, the watch, um, be happy with what you were able to put forth that day. I once heard a quote uh, by the famous Frank Shorter, who had run at Yale and certainly was one of America's great marathoners. They asked him, why do you run? And he responded, I run because I like the simple act of putting one foot in front of the other as fast as I possibly can. And on some days, that's really, really fast for an individual. And on some days, it's not quite as fast. So not, not great wisdom, but good rules to live by. Yeah, and that makes running more sustainable because running can be a hard sport. You know, there's a lot of grinding that's in the sport of running. And if, if you're not loving what you're doing, if you're not having fun, then it, it's just going to be an unsustainable endeavor for you. That's where having training partners, being on a team can really help. Having a coach like you or having a high school or a college coach can really help. Um, 
you know, sharing that experience, I think makes it easier. I'm fortunate. I had great teammates. I love running with my teammates. I love coaching and seeing guys like you work hard with your teammates. Um, so no, that, that is true. I, I have always enjoyed the grind. There are some guys that don't like to go to the range and work on their golf game. To me, practice. You know, I, I don't, I, I can never figure out why Alan Iverson didn't like to practice. I love practice. So Yeah. I, I always like the grind too. And, you know, I, I think your love for the sport really rubbed off on me in college because when I graduated college, it, it wasn't really even a question in my mind as to whether or not I was going to keep training and competing and entering races and entering some longer distances and just getting into trying some new things. And, and I think, you know, looking back, I very much remember something that you told me uh, at that time. You know, you said something about uh, how your time running post-collegiately was was really important to you. You couldn't imagine life without training and competing at that time. And, you know, when I was in a similar time period in my own life, I kept hearing you say that. And I kept thinking to myself, what else would I be doing right now if I wasn't involved in training and racing and competing? I just couldn't, I just couldn't answer that question. You know, would I stay up an hour later watching TV and then just not train in the morning before work? That just seems shallow to me. And I, and I wanted all of the, you know, all of the, the great experiences you have that you get from participating in running. So, um, not, not to mention the lifelong health benefits that has provided us. I mean, I'm as fit as most of my peers. Um, when I tell people how old I am, they typically, you know, they, they guess that I'm 69 and a half and I, I'm 70. So they, they, they think <laughs> I look a little younger than I am. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be running for some people. It might be cycling for some people. It might be pickleball. Um, you know, that's the rage now, but any organized activity that helps with our fitness is so important. It's, it's good for your physical fitness, but it's also good for, for, at least it was for me, for my mental well being. It helped balance my life. Um, Sometimes you sacrifice, you get up early to get the run and maybe you're on vacation with your family. I, I remember that we, we have two children and my wife always arranged for us going somewhere during the summer, uh, for at least a week. And when I was still racing, I just, that just meant I had to get up at four or 5 AM to get it done. I remember running in Disney when we took the children to Disney. Um, and I was talking to the workers who were cleaning up the park from the night before on my morning runs. But I did that, not I don't that a lot of dads do that or moms do that. You do it just because it was important me to do it, but it was most important that I be with my family when they were enjoying the park. So no, running running's been good to me. No complaints. Yeah. And you know, I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the fact that, you know, you coached for over 30 years and you know, it wasn't your full time job. I know that it didn't pay you very well. And I know that it took you away from your family for a lot of dinners and some weekend time. What made you so invested in the sport that you kept up that schedule, that commitment for such a long period of time? That's a hard question. That's the hardest one you've asked me so far, and maybe the hardest one you'll ask me today. Um, I, I'm not sure I can quite nail down an answer for you. I, I do think I was inspired by my early coaches. My dad was my first coach. He coached me at baseball at the minor league level. And then I had two great little league coaches um, when I advanced. And I had uh, very nice Babe Ruth League coaches. And then when I decided I couldn't hit a curveball very well, I became a runner. Had a great high school coach, as I mentioned, great college coach. Um, I don't know if you were at the retirement that Connecticut College gave me a few years ago, but when I did retire, I do remember saying in my remarks that um, besides being called dad, the greatest thing anybody's ever called me is coach. It's, it's, I take such great pride in that. I mean, you still call me coach. Um, <laughs> what am I going to call you, Jim? I can't you call, call you Jim. Jim. Some that of the guys call me, me up and they, some of them call me up and call me mad dog. My son and daughter call me Jimbo or old man, so pops. <laughs> Um, no, it is. It's, um, being able to help somebody, being a coach or a teacher or anybody who's helping somebody learn some other new skill or pursuit. Um, it's a really worthy thing to do. 
Uh, I loved coaching at Connecticut College. Very fortunate. I started out when I first got out of college assisting my old high school coach at St. Bernard. Um, was fortunate to coach uh, one of my brothers, Pat, Pat Butler, who was a very fine runner there. Um, then, then I believe it or not, I coached um, junior college basketball for seven years, uh, working for a friend of mine. Um, they're a, a, I coached at the University of Connecticut, Avery Point, a branch of UConn stores. They had some great kids on that team. Um, I learned a lot about coaching from Jim Mullins, who was that head coach, even though it was a different sport, I was able to transfer a lot of what I learned under him um, into the Connecticut College job when I was very, very blessed to be named to that position by former athletic director, Charlie Luce. So I, I don't know. The real, I love the relationships. I love meeting young men. I liked meeting young men. I mean, there were a few, there were very, very few, maybe on, again, on one hand, I can count them that I didn't enjoy coaching as much as I enjoyed coaching you and the guys on that 2002 team. Hope you asked me a question about that team because I'll <laughs> never forget that team. Um, but relationships, I, that's what made me coach. I also had a, a really, again, wonderful wife who allowed me to do it. Not, not that I asked her permission, but she never complained. She was part of, it was a joint effort. As you know, we hosted a lot of events at our house and she got a lot out of meeting um, the young men and their families, just like I did. Um, I really didn't miss too much of my children's activities. I was just lucky. I had a government job uh, that had some flexible hours. I was the boss so I could move them around. Um, for the, There was a period of time when my daughter was running at my old high school. She ran for four years and we, we joked, where's Connecticut College practicing today? Oh, St. Bernard has a meet. That's the park. Connecticut College Men's Cross Country will be at. And um, I was able to oversee practice and watch Devin race. So then Devin went on to attend Connecticut College and throw the javelin uh, for us. Uh, so I got to see her compete there too. That was pretty cool. Well, you mentioned it. So now we definitely have to talk about it. The 2002 men's cross country team at Connecticut College. Was this the only year that you had uh, an actual team rather than an individual qualify for the national championship meet? That is correct. In fact, until this past fall, it was the only team, men's or women's, from Connecticut College to qualify for the national championships in cross country. Um, very proud of that fact, but I'm thrilled that this past year's, this past fall, the 2022 team qualified as a team under then interim coach Sam Alexander, who's just recently been appointed to head coach. And uh, uh, I've known known Sam for a long time. I was thrilled for him. He actually worked in my field in the government. I hired him at a government job, um, which he just left and is now going to be coach. They've, they've made the position at Connecticut College a few years ago, full-time position. So that's great. Um, that was a heck of a team, wasn't it? We had a, we had a good team. Yeah. And so I was a freshman when right. the team qualified for nationals. So I, I wasn't in the top seven. I was actually the third alternate. Uh, and you only brought two alternates to the meet. So I didn't actually get to go, but I love Both saying- got to run. What <laughs> if we had brought one more, you might've gotten to run. One guy got hurt, one guy got sick. I know. <laughs> well, I, I still love saying that I was an alternate for the 2002 national championship qualifying team, which is a, a big point of pride. Just that just me being around that team, which I do think really set the standard for the rest of my college career, because there were a lot of guys. If you remember the dynamic of that team, it was heavy on the seniors and heavy on the freshmen. Yes. And so those seniors worked hard. They were just in love with the sport. You know, I remember, you know, folks like Adam, uh, I actually spent some time with Dave Clayman here in Denver. He lives in Denver. And uh, it, it was just such an amazing team because all these freshmen came on board and then learned from these seniors. And then we carried a lot of those lessons, that work ethic, and, and you know, even some of the humor. And, you know, they, they like to bust your chops a little bit. And I think <laughs> everyone liked to bust your chops after seeing them do it. So it, it was just a really great dynamic that I very much look back on. And I think just like you, when you say going to Rutgers was a high point of not just my running career, but also just a, a life moment, same thing for me. You know, I look back on my time at Connecticut College and it was so fun, but it was also a time of incredible growth 
both physically as a runner and mentally as a student. Like it was just incredible. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do on the running side of things from that 2002 cross country team. Uh, it was a special time. I have a picture right here on my desk in my office. You may recall it was snow. Uh, you were at the New England regionals when we qualified. I'll never forget this. So can I take a minute to tell the story about how oh, I- Oh, it's a great how, story. Tell the story. I won't talk about the race other than there were, it, it was kind of a toss up that year, as I recall. Um, we knew that four teams from the New England region would qualify. How they qualify now is a little bit different, um, but it used to be based on how many teams, um, I think it was how many teams went the year before and then how well those teams did at nationals. We knew four were going from New England. And there were probably seven or eight teams, most of them from our conference, the New England Small College Athletic Conference, that were in contention. Um, I think we were considered a dark horse. There was very little uh, social media back then. I don't recall if there was internet chat about the chances, but there was talk at different big meets. We had our two big guns, Adam Fitzgerald and Dave Clayman, and then a bunch of really, really tough-minded guys. Um, but I'll never forget, the race went pretty well. Um, as I recall, didn't we have three in the top 35, maybe four or one just outside? I think Matt, um, doesn't matter. And and I knew we were, and I knew Adam and Dave were either both in the top 10 or one was just outside. So I had done the scoring in my head um, and it was taking them an awful long time to put the results up. They didn't have everything automated like you do now. They didn't have uh, a, a cell phone where you could look at the phone and the live results would be posted. They would post them in a tent near the finish line. Um, it was a cold day. It had started to snow a little bit at the end. And I said, look, I'm going to go crazy standing here waiting for the results. The women's race was about to start. We were at Westfield State at Stanley Park. And I said, I'm going to go out and get on the course along, the, I think they ran along a river, and I'm going to watch and cheer for the women. And I was out there for a while, and of course, you know, I'm trying to put everything out of my mind, just saying, oh, gosh, please don't miss my one or two points. We either get blown away or please take us. This team's got to go to Nationals, which was in Minnesota. And I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, I got tackled from behind by Alex Rowe. Now, I'm not a big fella. Alex Rowe was a big fella for a runner, and he took me down hard. And somebody <laughs> starts yelling. Guys are yelling. All our, our runners are coming up behind me, and a course official yells, get off the course. The race is coming. I said, get off the course. And Alex Rowe stands up, and he goes, we're going. I said, no, not we're going. Get off it now. And he says, no, 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 we're going to Minnesota. I said, what? He said, we qualified. We're in the top four. We were fourth. I said, terrific. I said to myself, I've got to see it with my own eyes. And I sprinted back ahead of the women's race. I got to the open field and I'm cutting across the field. And I saw um, my assistant coach, Kevin Grant. Kevin's like, coach, we're going, we're going. I've, uh, I got to see it myself. And before I got to the tent, I ran in, I ran just up to and, and next to uh, coach George Souter from Trinity. Of course, Connecticut College is our tribal because we're two Nescat schools in Connecticut. And um, George had a sunken face. And I found out after why, he, their team was, I think, sixth. They had made a run at it too. And he says, coach, coach. And he grabbed me, big, big guy, and he picked me up off the ground. He said, congratulations, you're going. He said, you made it. And, and to this day, I tell that story. I played golf with George couple times during the summer. We've remained very, very close. He recently retired. And I said, that's the kind of gentleman Coach Suter is. And that's the kind of friendships I made in this sport. Um, I did run up to that tent and I got to see we made it ourselves. Um, the picture I started to t uh, at the start of the story, I told you it is um, afterwards they have a little ceremony and we were taking a team picture in front of the Connecticut College tent. You're all in a row. I'm looking at it right now. And there's this little guy and that's me. And they had just announced over the PA, the fourth team, making it to Nationals. And as they did that, I've got my arms up like this. And I'm yelling, yeah, ooh. Greatest moment I ever had as coach. Uh, well, I had many great moments. But at the time, that was pretty special. Um, when we went inside, um, Tufts did not make it. 
another conference rival. Um, two class guys on their team. Um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget their names right now, but they both came up to me and, and sincerely congratulated at, they had run, they were Adam's nemesis too. Um, our, our top guy against their top two guys. And they really were sincere in their congratulations. Uh, coach Jim Westcott, Colby, who would, um, they had been to Nashville several times and they didn't make it, but were in the mix came over and gave me a special congratulations. Um, that's a fraternity of coaches and, and athletes that we competed within. Um, very special time. We did go to Minnesota. Uh, again, my memory fades as I get older. I'm pretty sure we were either 19th or 20th out of 24 teams. We went into the meet um, in the last ranking that the U.S. Track and Field Coaches Association had. I think we were seated 23rd or 24th out of 24. So we bested that by four places. And that's with uh, two of our top seven guys injured. One injured, one sick. Um, you know, our top guys ran pretty well. Uh, they were just outside All-American. Of course, Adam Fitzgerald, team captain, decided to do. He was a transfer into Connecticut College. He um, he had eligibility left. He decided to pursue the beginning of his master's degree at Con, which he did, and he ran uh, that next semester, uh, next fall for us. And he would he said, "I'm coming back because I I want to be an All-American." And he went out and got that. So that he was the first All-American I coached. Um, would go on to become my assistant coach for six or seven years. So, yep, great memories, great memories. And I'm very fortunate to have been there when we qualified for nationals. I remember running up to you with the rest of the team. I I will deny jumping on top of you, but I think I was That's part of okay. that mix. <laughs> After I found out why, everybody was forgiven. <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about, you know, the... The, all the all the guys that you've coached over the years. I mean, you recruited high school kids to come run for you with the idea that hopefully they would improve and get better. And I just love to talk a little bit about your perspective on on talent. What, what do you look for in prospective runners besides just fast finish times? Was there some intangible that you looked for or that stood out to you? You know, what was what was interesting to you as, as a coach recruiting a high school kid? Well, again, that's another hard question. Um, because of the conference we're in uh, and because of the, the school's we affiliate with Connecticut College has very high academic standards, as you know. How the heck you got in? I'll never figure it out. Um, that <laughs> was you, a coach. joke, folks. That was a joke. You can cut it out if you want to edit. No, we're uh, leaving it in. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, so that narrows your talent pool down right away. You have to pursue a student who has uh, an academic interest and in qualifications to attend your higher education institution. Uh, and so that's the first place you start. It's a lot easier to recruit at the end of my career because a lot of uh, the information we need is all up online. Um, back in the old days, you had to really do a little investigation first. You, uh, you certainly want, want to attract. Obviously, I, I, I was most interested in recruiting the fastest runners I could because my goal as a coach is to make my team as fast as they can be. But times along don't define a runner. They don't um, project how fast a runner will be at the end of four years. A lot of what I'm looking the most important thing I look for is right here. I look for heart. All right. Um, there were, if you ask me, I mentioned five or six runners, maybe I weren't particularly fond of, uh, probably mostly because they didn't put 100% into it. In fact, as you know, I, I like to challenge you to give me 110%, your sport, not me. Um, because if you want to be good at something, give it your all. You can be, you can give all you can to running and still be a great student and be a great, great brother to your sister, a great son to your parents, a great citizen in your community. There's no reason you can't be great at everything. Um, so I look for guys that had heart. Um, despite your uh, very nice um, compliment that I might have been fast at one point in my youth. I really wasn't that fast, um, but I love to train. I mentioned I love practice in golf. I love, I, I didn't love to train. I, I, I love to drive myself and challenge myself. I ran a lot of miles, as you know, and um, I'd ask my 
athletes still run a lot of miles too. Maybe not as much as we ran back in the seventies because times were different then and coaching evolves, training evolves. Um, but I wanted to have runners on my team that cared as much as I did and were, was willing to do the work, be it a long run or particularly hard workout. Um, let's see. I wanted runners that were good teammates. Makes my job a whole lot easier when the run. You mentioned the 2002 team. For the most part, everybody got along. In fact, the one guy on the team that I thought was um, a bit of a son of a gun when I first met him went on to be one of the leaders of that team and in his own way challenged that team to go to the 2002 national championships. I never thought he'd be a very good cross-country runner because he was a, you know, on the track. He was an 800-meter man. I'll mention his name. I hope he watches this. His name was Alex Rowe. What a leader he came by example. He did challenge the team verbally over his last year or two. I, I, I remember him telling me as, as he left uh, junior year, you know, to go home for the summer or sometime early that fall, coach, we can make nationals. Well, if you recall, we were 13th at New England's the year before, 11th or 13th. And I, I think I asked him, you know, what hallucinogen have you been playing with? Because I didn't think, I thought our team could be better. I didn't, I, I didn't know they would be as good as they could be. Alex had a lot of heart. Um, he really cared. And he's not the only guy on that team. Everybody did. Um, so a runner with heart is important. Um, you, you do remember I had a saying. Um, I know this is a family podcast, but I, I had a code word I would use. I would ask my runners to run with big coconuts. Um, so if I've offended anybody, I apologize. But in other words, I was asking them to run with a lot of intestinal fortitude. Um, no matter how bad you feel that day, remember, you're running for your team. If you ran the first two miles and, and you really were having a bad day, a side stitch or an old Achilles injury was, was kicking in, okay, so maybe you could have run faster for those first two miles, but you can't do anything about it. Run the next three miles as fast as you can. Make it a race from there in. Um, it's kind of like match play in golf. That's why I like match play. You can have a blow-up hole, um, but win the next three and win the match. So, Coach, was it hard to, to identify heart in a high school athlete? Like, How do you, how do you kind of wrap your head around that? Because I imagine that would be difficult. Well, you're right. It is. Um, we didn't have Zoom back then. I couldn't talk to the guys online. I, I made a lot of phone calls, wrote a lot of letters uh, the old-fashioned way. I'd write them out. Um, probably didn't meet too many of the runners back in the early days until they showed up on campus for the first time. Um, That's as, how we met. Right, right. As we got better as, as and, and how schools recruit students changed, uh, more and more students would come and stay overnights um, sometimes. I, I, I joked about a fellow that came and stayed three times overnight um, in Division Three. There's no limits. Well, we don't have really official visits, so he could come as many times as he wanted. Um, and then he came to Con. Um, you really don't understand if a runner has heart probably until they join your team. Um, we, we had, again, we had a few runners that didn't have heart when they started, but they learned to have heart. They learned how to have passion for our sport because of the men that were surrounding them. Hopefully I set a good example and uh, tried to, and, you know, I, I think one of the most important things a coach can do is be inspirational, be motivational. Um, I let other judge whether I was good at that. I worked hard to be that way. I know that coaches that um, motivated me met, meant a lot to my advancement. So I tried to be that way. I tried to be positive. Very few times where I, would I be negative. Um, when I was negative, it was probably had to do with a runner maybe not working hard enough at a practice, and I would go over, you know, that would irk me, and and tell them, look, you know, you can do better than this. But most of the time, even after a a, a bad race, I think the coach's duty, responsibility, and the best thing you can do is say, all right, you had a bad race, but let's look at the positive. Let's take something away from that race. Here's what you did well. Here's what you can do next time. So it's hard, hard to see the heart until you've been with somebody for a little bit. But I wanted, I wanted runners that were respectful. Um, I'll tell you a story about a runner that I encouraged not to come to Connecticut College. So I can't remember his name because he didn't come. 
Uh, we were recruiting a kid out of a prep school in Massachusetts, I think. Might have been Connecticut. He was a pretty good runner on a really good team. Um, and he showed up. We had this really nice visit with his mom. Um, I could tell the kid was a little full of himself, you know. That's okay. You know, youth. Youth is blind um, to what it's like to be a serious adult. But anyways, toward the end of the visit, he had given me his, uh, he had dropped off his running resume, I think his academic resume, so I could keep it in my file. And then he opened his portfolio and he showed me a photo. He said, hey, coach, what do you think of this? It's from my last race. And I looked and there were seven guys holding hands coming into the finish line. And they were looking back, laughing at the first runner from the other team that was a dual meet, trying to catch them. And they were laughing at he said, Coach, what do you think of that? Oh, pretty funny, huh? And I looked at it. You know, his mother was right there, and I decided I'd choose my words wisely, and I said, I don't think you'd be a good fit here running for one of my teams at Connecticut College. I said, because I would never allow my athletes to belittle in a So there was a runner I knew that didn't have his heart in the right place, and he wasn't a respectful kid, at least in that particular instance. I hope he learned from it. Hope he had a great career. Can't remember his name. He probably forgot about me a week later. So, um, but I'll I'll never forget that, and that's a true story. So, very few times did I ask a runner not to apply or discourage him from applying. I did discourage a few guys that were on our team that were doing it for the wrong reasons, never trained hard. I I encouraged them to leave the team. I guess you could say I cut them. But as you know, we went to having a. Um, here's how you found out if your runners had heart. We used to open the season with, uh, uh, wound up being called Butler Hell Week, you know, during orientation when we would do double workouts. Um, but we always opened the season at some point in my running career with, on the very first day of practice, we'd go out to Harkness or Harkness, um, the, the park next to Harkness, Harkness camp. And we would run, um, two times 3000, um, with a 10 minute recovery in between in the Freshman would come up, coach, coach, how fast should we run the first 3,000? I said, I want you to run as fast as you can. So they would. They'd go out and they'd run personal best 3,000. And they'd do their jog with the seniors and the juniors, the upperclassmen. They'd come back, coach, coach, how fast are we supposed to run the second 3,000? And I just said, faster than the first one. And then I'll find out if you train this summer. So that was always a good challenge, you know, and the upper class would know it and they'd prepare themselves for it. So I, I do remember that workout. It was, it was not fun. You find out quickly if a runner has heart when you do a few challenge workouts like that. So do you happen to remember when I was in college, I made a couple just short videos, uh, just recapping some highlights of the season and I, I, I really need to find this tape, but I filmed one of your pre-race little pep talks that you gave the team and to speak to you being motivational. I, I, I haven't watched this thing. I really need to find it, but I haven't watched it in probably 10 years, but I still remember this one line that it starts off with. You say, we have a plan and it's going to work. You brought so much motivation and confidence to those pre-race talks that I think it fired everyone up and, and I remember we were at the, the Tufts course and we were treating the race more like a workout. I think we were doing the first two miles more like a threshold effort. And then we were going to really kick on the afterburners around mile two. And, and just hearing you say, we have a plan and it's going to work was just really inspiring to me as a runner. Because I was like, hey, coach thinks it's going to work. It's going to work. He knows what he's doing. Well, a couple of thoughts on that. First, the coach of runners, of distance runners, has to be careful. It's not like um, football where you want the guys running out of the locker room really intense after um, Al Pacino's speech. Well, uh, I forgot the name of the movie. Any Given Sunday. Any Given Sunday. Because we, we competed, Connecticut College competed at five miles, men's cross country. That's a long way to be really, really fired up. I learned that early. Maybe I got the guys too fired up real early. Um, I learned about having a plan, a training plan, and that will work from my coaches. Um, Coach Sharples had us 
we were the best prepared high school cross country team around. We won two state open championships and an indoor track championship while I was there, state championship. And coach always told us, you know, we were going to be the best prepared. My college coach maybe didn't um, verbalize it in quite that way, uh, but we always knew when we went into a race, we were going to be as prepared or more prepared than the other team. And we were able to beat some teams with great talent um, because we were better prepared. Um, you know, my professional background, I was a city planner or a regional planner for many years. So I believe in projecting out, looking ahead, coming up with a way to attack an issue, be it a, you know, how to get a new road built or how to, how to win a race, how to have a team peak at the right time. Um, a lot of times a coach might say that I'll confess to you right now on, on this tape live. I might've told you before that race at Grafton, we have a plan and it will work. And I was thinking to myself, what are we doing? <laughs> maybe we should be training, running this race really, really hard, or maybe we shouldn't be running it at all or whatever. Because like any human being, um, like any athlete, you self-doubt can creep in. Uh, but I figured if I sounded confident, you know, if you saw this little five, six, one twenty guy, mad dog running around saying, we're confident this is going to work. Well, it's better than me running around going, whoa, was me, whoa, was me. Our runners are terrible. We're terrible. It's not going to work. So um, at least it sounded good. <laughs> it worked. No, yeah. that, you know, after a while as a coach, when I was named to the job by Charlie Luce, God rest his soul, I remember coming home, um, probably going to bed that night and I'm laying next to Mrs. Butler. I said, I can't sleep. She said, why can't you sleep? I said, well, as you know, I was just named coach of the Connecticut College Cross Country Team. This is an awesome responsibility. I was named coach in February. I didn't start practice till late August, right? So I had all this time to prepare and worry about it. And I said, I'm not sure. I said, what if I mess these guys up? What if I can't coach them? I said, this is different than helping Coach Sharples with high school or helping Coach Mullins with Avery Point basketball. She said, Jim, have you been coaching yourself since you've gotten out of college? I said, yeah. She said, have you competed successfully? I said, I think I've done okay. She said, you'll be fine with these young guys. So that helped me because if my wife thought I was going to be fine. But I remember every time a parent sent their child to me and a, a young man chose to attend Connecticut College, a lot of times running had something to do with it. That's an awesome responsibility. Don't, don't mess up these guys four years you know, make it the best experience it can be, but also put them in the best physical condition they can be in to go out and achieve their running goals. So uh, I told you that being called coach is one of the greatest compliments in the world, but with it comes this big responsibility. You're a coach. You're, you're coaching many, many athletes now online or however you do it. I still haven't figured it out. And by the <laughs> way, folks, if you would ask me to pick the one athlete who would go on to be a successful coach and develop something called strength running, I might have picked him the top two or three guys. Me. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a compliment, but thank you anyway. <laughs> um, let me ask you a training question. I'm going to keep it broad, but you know, you, you coached so many young guys and so many very talented young men over the years, over the decades. You know, if you had to look back on on all the training that you assigned to runners, what do you think are some of the highest leverage? training strategies that any of our listeners might be able to apply to their own training to get their performance to the next level. You know, not not an individual workout or something like that, but maybe a mindset or something to focus on, something along those lines. Well, obviously, um, probably most of your listeners know about the periodization of training, uh, which means there are cycles in our our training year. Um, we, you, you can't do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, training has evolved immensely. Um, when I started out, you know, I, I read all the books I could. I read Egloy, I read Sarudi, I read uh, Von Aachen. Um, I read uh, Sebastian Coe's dad was his coach, all these great coaches. Um, but I, I remember refining all uh, what we did at some point in my 30-year career, um, maybe halfway through. I know was, well, it was around the time we had the 2002 team. I mean, the plan was working. But Adam became my coach after he was an All-American, Adam Fitzgerald. No relation, but your 
almost your brother, because uh, you guys were very close roommates for years. Um, I remember Adam and I uh, tweaking our training as, as our rudders got faster and faster. And there were several keys to almost every training season. And we, in college, we had three seasons. You had cross country in the fall, you had indoor track, which although we wanted to compete at a high level, we wanted our athletes to run as fast as they could. Going to BU and running on the boards was pretty exciting. And there is, you know, the potential to go to the national championships. The, the most important track season was the outdoor season. Um, it's tough to train indoors when you don't have an indoor track. We did not at Connecticut College. We made the best of what we had. So for a lot of reasons, the spring season was most important of the two track seasons. But the spring season in New England, you know, you're, you're, a bit, uh, you're at the mercy of the weather. Uh, again, we didn't have an indoor track. So we'd break it down into three seasons, but then you periodize each of the three seasons. And key components of all three seasons were several workouts. Um, the long run, you know, I, I believe in the church of the long run. I, I happen to go to church every Sunday, um, go to mass. Um, but I also, when I was training and when I was training my athletes, our long runs were on the weekends. Um, one run depends on what your event was in track. It depends on where we were in the cross-country season. The second most important part of the week was our threshold pace run. It was either a, a, a distance run at a tempo pace, or we've learned a lot more about threshold pace training now, and I'm sure you've had podcasts on that. Um, I became quickly became a disciple of Coach Jack Daniels, the great coach at Cortland State, who's written several books about threshold pace training. There's a local coach here, a friend of mine who, who I worked with at a couple of camps we spoke at, named, his name was Jerry Chester, who had great success using tempo and threshold training with his high school athletes, won men's state championship. He had also coached for Coach Sharples, as did I. Um, and then the third, the third part of your week, the third most important part of your week is, is you know, there must be some speed session at some point. And if it's early in the season, it's not very fast. Uh, and if you're sharpening as you're going into a championship part of the season, you're doing shorter intervals and you're doing faster work. Uh, had a miler named Keith Drake who had transferred from, oh boy. Was it UNH? No, he, that's Brian Adams. Um, Keith Drake transferred from Ohio Wesleyan. And um, Keith came to us and he said, Coach, I want to go to the national championship. She wound up qualifying all three seasons, different years, but all three seasons. Um, and I started looking at what uh, I think Coach Ron Warhurst was doing at Michigan um, with his mileage. And we did a lot of um, uh, 200, 300 workouts, 300, 200 workouts. And, you know, now it's become very standard fare for milers. Um, Keith got down to, Wore 11, 409, something like that. Um, ran very, very fast. I think he had the school record at the five. So three, three key parts. I don't believe the other three or four days a week should be considered jump mileage. They, that had its purpose too. Um, of course, it, training isn't just running. Training is, do, remember my expression, do the little things. You have to do the little things and pay attention to the little things. That's eating right, sleeping right. And that's very hard for a college student um, because of your academic workload and other things you want to be involved in. Um, we've, we've, later in my coaching career, we introduced strength training. Um, we didn't do as much back in the early days. Did a lot of push-ups, core work. Um, we refined our core routine. Probably time Adam was there. Um, we were very religious about doing our core, especially during the indoor season and spring season. Um, and that's when we started lifting weights was during indoors. During cross country, I figured they were running more, more distance to handle the five mile races. Um, we did a lot of push ups and core work. And then we started drills too. Um, I was very fortunate to work with our women's coach, Connecticut College, Coach Ned Bishop, who's still there. He's a tremendous, um, teacher of running skills and drills. Uh, really worked well helped us with all of our steeplers. You probably benefited by his knowledge. Um, I coached the steeplechasers. I had been a steeplechaser. I wound with an Olympic steeplechaser. But Coach Ned really helped refine the steepling ability uh, technique. 
he was better at, at that than I could be ever be. So, but those are the key parts of the workouts. Um, you know, all the little things is just being smart, you know, not getting up in the middle of the night and breaking your toe because your roommate left something in the middle of the floor and maybe you were out late with him and he, whatever. Little things, important. When I had Mike LaDuke, I used to tell him I wanted to, you know, as we were going into big races and he had chances to do some special things, for those of you that don't know, Mike LaDuke was a three-time um, national champion and nighttime All-American force at Connecticut College, a four or five miler, and a winner of this uh, Division One uh, steeplechase at Penn Relays. Um, but I used to say to Mike, you know, don't get sick. You can't control certain things. You're at a college campus. I'm talking too much. Go ahead. Well, no, that's that's actually really good advice just to hear about all the little things. And, you know, Coach, my high school cross-country coach would always tell us to keep our fingers out of our orifices because that's how we would get sick. And he would always just be really adamant about staying healthy, especially as you get into the, you know, mid to late October part of the cross-country season. Let me ask you one more question just about how things have changed over the years. You know, there there have been uh, so much new tech that's come online since I graduated even in 2006 from pretty impressive smartwatches to carbon plated shoes, even new hydration and fueling products, and also just the amount of information that's now available on the internet with regard to training. If you are coaching now, how would you balance all this new tech with just the love of the sport and the grind of training and just getting out there and sort of feeling the training and really being a little bit more intuitive about it. How would you balance that? Because I'm sure that there's some difficulty now because I'm sure a lot of the the college students want to be a slave to their GPS watch and they want to pour over all these metrics. Was that ever an issue? And, and how might you deal with it today? I mean, when I coached, Things had evolved from when I ran in college and high school. Oh, the shoes were better, um, not as good as they are now. When, when I used to run, I remember um, coming home from college and wanting to run a time 10-miler. I had a route here. I'd leave my mother's kitchen when the, you know, the um, clock stuck 12 so I could time what that was because I didn't have a nice Garmin or a, I didn't even have a, a stopwatch on my wrist. They didn't have them. And a couple of times I'd run with a, coaches stopwatch in my hand um nutrition was different things have changed the shoes unbelievable i guess runners can with these with these um what do they call them what kind of shoe uh, super shoes they can uh train better they can rain harder they can have more hard sessions during the week because they recover faster i think the coach has to be aware of that and yes keep up with your technology and changes training around that um i i don't worry too much about the young athletes you know entering their results on the watch as long as they're getting their work in and not spending too much time um worrying about well gee i was two tenths of a second off from the same workout i ran a week ago so what that's that's minuscule don't worry about it son um but no i i think coaches have evolved coach who has evolved that's why the dinosaurs like me have left <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good point that as long as you're putting in the work and the data is not becoming stressful for you, that's probably a good place to be. Because if it is introducing worry and anxiety and you're spending more time analyzing your your workouts than actually running your workouts, what? that's probably the wrong balance, right? Right. It you know, I kept I, I'm looking over at a bookshelf in my room here and I have the uh, you know, 20 or 30 years of running logs that I kept and I could go back and look at my workouts, but you try not to do that too much. Use the information for what it's there for. Uh, don't stress over it. Now the runners can record it on their watches. It goes to their smartphones, maybe to their PC or their, um, whatever else device you're using these days. Um, just, just a different medium. That's all. Yeah. You know, I, I love the fact that you have all these old school training logs, like just notebooks, because I have the same thing. I have a bunch of runner's world logs and I have a bunch of handwritten notebooks. Just, I probably have 12 to 15 of them since high school. I, I went back and found my, I didn't have logs in college. I had 
chart paper that was this wide. I for, uh, It's like gr a special graph paper. And I'd line out the weeks. And I went back and looked at what I was running in college. You wouldn't believe the mileage we ran junior and senior year. And that's why we had a marathon team. Or because we had a marathon team, we ran the mileage. Um, the, I was fortunate that I was able to, you know, run that distance in college. Otherwise, I would have sat home a lot of weeks when we were limited as to who we could bring to meets. Let me ask you a provocative question before we wrap up. You said that we were running the mileage, so then it made the marathon sort of feasible. It was possible for us to handle a race of that distance. There are a lot of runners today that are running marathons with performance goals that still only run 30 to 40 miles a week. Right. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, several. Um, I think it depends on the individual. Um, if it's just a person who's in 30s, 40s, 50s, not running in college, that's great that they have a goal. They should be encouraged to go get that goal. There's nothing wrong with people running the marathons at, at you know less than world record pace. That's fine. Yeah. They have smart coaches like you helping them. One is they're getting their long run in once every week or two. Um, personally, I wouldn't want to run a marathon. I, I, I've chosen not to run um, um, any races right after I turned 40. I just, I had run at a level I didn't want to race anymore. Uh, I know a lot of my contemporaries were very, felt very much the same way. Um, but if people are just starting out, that's okay. Run 30 or 40 miles a week, but do it smartly. Personally, when we ran the marathon in college, we were running 120 miles, 110 to 130 miles a week. It was typical by my junior and senior year. Um, that's because our coach let us. Um, that's because we were able to do it. Um, my body was able to handle it. Not everybody's body can. I was, even though I was slight and small, I was very strong. I never got injured. I was fortunate. I was lucky. Um, and then at post-college, I ran even more. I would run 140, 150 miles a week. I once ran 175 miles a week. Uh, I did that because, again, my silly friend, Amby Burfoot, did it and said, do you want to try it? I want to go two weeks in a row at 175. So I did the second week with him. He was nuts, um, <laughs> but he was great. He was great. Um, so, no, I, I think... Um, there's room in the marathons for everybody, but to be an elite marathoner, um, there are very few runners that are running minimal mileage and hoping to make the Olympic trials. I think for a while in the United States, we got away from hard work and grinding. You know, you'd open a Grutter's World or other running magazines and it might have a, you know, five easy ways to run the marathon, uh, five easy ways to train for the marathon, five easy things to do to train for the marathon. Training for a marathon is not easy, whether you're running 30 miles a week or 130. It's, it's difficult. And the marathon race, whether you're running two hours and 10 minutes or four hours and 10 minutes, it's hard. Um, and that's why you do it, because it's hard. If it was easy, who'd want to do it? <laughs> well, I, I can't think of a more perfect place to wrap up. Coach, you were such an integral part of my running career and helped me really fall in love with the sport as a young man. And uh, I just want to thank you for all you've done for not just me, but but all the guys on the team. I know a lot of people who are very appreciative of the support you gave them, the guidance you gave them, and the love for the sport that you helped instill in so many. So I appreciate your time today. Thanks. I'm, I'm sorry that after 300 and something episodes that you had to be number 314 or so, but we got you on. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Um, best of luck to everybody listening. Train hard and enjoy the heck out of it. Thanks, Jace. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Coach. Bye-bye. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to pay it forward, please rate and review the show. You can share it with your running friends or your club, or you can invest in a training program at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors. By using their links and discount codes, you'll not only support the Strength Running Podcast, but also support our sponsors and indicate to them that they should continue sponsoring the show. First, get yourself 15% off your first purchase at Prevenex.com with code Jason15. 
If you've been listening to this podcast for the last six months, you've heard me talk about Joint Health Plus from Prevenex and how it's directly impacted the health of so many runners. Their CEO just keeps forwarding me all these testimonials because it just works. So definitely keep those coming. I want to share a couple with you that David, the Prevenex CEO, just sent me. I share these with you to show you that Joint Health Plus actually works. First, a listener named Kim wrote, my ankle and knee pain was completely gone in a week. Amazing. And then there was Anna who wrote, I thought I was on the verge of having to give up running due to severe hip pain. And luckily I discovered Prevenex, complete game changer for me. Joint Health Plus is so powerful because the main active ingredient is clinically proven to reduce joint pain, reduce joint stiffness, and improve joint flexibility in just seven to 10 days. That's right, just seven to 10 days. It's almost unheard of. It's also clinically proven, not just tested, but actually proven in double-blinded placebo-controlled studies to protect joint cartilage from breaking down during exercise. You can get 15% off your first Prevenex purchase by using code JASON15. Visit Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com. And I'll note one last thing. Prevenex offers a 30-day money-back guarantee where if you don't feel the benefits on their product, you get your money back with no questions asked. So I hope you enjoy it and definitely keep sending in those testimonials. They completely fire me up. Next is Lagoon, maker of the most comfortable pillow I've ever used. And that's no hyperbole. I'm pleasantly surprised every night I lie down because this pillow is just perfect for me. I took their sleep quiz online to find the right pillow for my body size in my sleeping position at lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning. It's only two minutes and you'll find out the type of pillow that will work best for you. I'm using the Fox pillow and absolutely loving it. A big reason why is because it's adjustable. The pillow comes with extra fill so you can adjust it to your unique needs. And we all know how important sleep is. It's the best recovery tool that we all have at our disposal. Better than compression, ice, heat, massage, or anything else that you can think of. Sleep is when the magic happens, and your sleep quality matters. Now, I'm almost done with reading Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. And there's a whole section on sleep, not only as a longevity tool, but also as a way to reduce the risk of neurodegenerative diseases. So suffice it to say, I'm taking sleep a lot more seriously now, and Lagoon is making that a lot easier for me. And U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon qualifier Caitlin Keene has also started using a Lagoon pillow, and she saw her deep sleep increase by 52 minutes a night. So I'm really excited to read the rewards of better sleep compounded night after night. Get 15% off your pillow at lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning with code strengthrunning at checkout. You'll take their two-minute sleep quiz, find the right pillow for you, and then you can adjust it to perfection. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash strengthrunning and use code strengthrunning to save 15% today. Okay, that's our show, my friends. Thank you so much for supporting our sponsors, leaving a review, investing in a training program for yourself at strengthrunning.com. I'm always available to help you with a question, so don't ever hesitate to reach out to me through the Strength Running website, or you can message me on Instagram at JasonFitz1. We'll talk soon.